This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Climate Action Show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne on the community radio network and podcast which can be found on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Make sure to share the show if you like what you hear. My name is Carly and today my guest is Nato from Blockade iMark. Nato is based in Melbourne and is an educator and community campaigner who wanted to talk to us about the upcoming conference. Hi Nato, thanks for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. No worries, how are you going today? I'm going well, um, a little bit uh, reaching my ends of my rope with the COVID pandemic, but that's an ongoing thing that we just have to deal with in our lives now, but yeah, simmering away. Yep, hear you loud and clear, simmering, hating, getting through it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I guess, firstly, can you let us know about Blockade IMARC? What is it? Beautiful, yeah, thank you. Um, Blockade IMARC is a campaign that's been running for a few years now and it's basically an alliance of people and groups who join together to assist the extractive construction of IMARC. And IMARC stands for the International Mining and Resources Conference which advertises itself as the largest mining networking conference in Australia. Um, So it's basically the mega mining conference that facilitates mining globally and also here in so-called Australia. And Blockade IMARC humbles itself with wanting to just draw attention to some of the violence and destruction that IMARC facilitates. Um, And so we are an alliance of people that organise against that um, with conferences as well as in-person protests. Awesome. I think it's really important that you mentioned the violence inherent because I think a lot of people might have only known about Blockade Iamark after the infamous, mm. um, you know, how many years ago was it now? Maybe 2019. God, it feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> but the um, violence against protesters, you know. Um, so I guess how did you come about to find out about Blockade Iamark? Why did you get involved? Yeah, well, I was someone who was around during those 2019 protests. Um, not as an organiser, but I definitely was there. Like my body was there at those infamous um, <laughs> few days. Um, and, yeah, I think it was definitely a moment for a lot of people who did come along in that particular year and just seeing the response from the police um, towards people who were just standing around being like, we don't think this is good or, you know, just sort of questioning why this conference was happening and seeing that sort of really strong, violent response from the police was quite, um, yeah, people definitely still think about it to this very day. But I think what I learned at at IMAC is they actually want to draw their attention towards, like, um, the frontline communities that do have to deal with these attractive industries. So often when we think about the climate and climate movement, we think about what can we do to, you know, store our carbon and to create the greener future where actually like mining is implicit in violence towards you know we say land water and life 
And so violence towards people's, you know, living bodies is also part of the climate sort of crisis. And what really drew me to Block at IMAC was the emphasis on that and the emphasis on building solidarity with these frontline communities that, you know, yeah, deal with violence in so many different ways, not just the climate, you know, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And can you tell us about some of the communities that are impacted by this extractivism culture? Um, yeah, I mean, just as one example, I think it's a good one to bring up. Um, there's a company called Oceana Gold, um, and they operate uh, many places, but particularly in the Philippines, and they have the biggest like gold mining project in the world. And like uh, environmental defenders and campaigners over there routinely get um, sadly killed um, for their campaigning. And so we do want to draw attention to those people who do what we do, but actually the stakes are a lot higher because they're on the front line of where these extractive industries get their profit from. So if they say, we don't like this, um, yeah, it's not beyond certain companies just to sort of facilitate violence in many different ways. So yeah, Oceana Gold, they're, they're a company that are at IMAC every year. Um, and we definitely want to draw attention to the atrocities that they um, that they perform, yeah. Mm, it's. I think it's really interesting and I think it's really important to share these stories about the real communities and places that are being impacted because, you know, by nature of kilometres and, you know, oceans and borders, we are quite removed from it, which is quite lucky. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's sort of difficult to wrap your head around when you are living in Melbourne, um, <laughs> especially for myself, mm. the, comfort, the absolute comfort that is my life. And <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and then I sort of you know, start thinking about you, know, you, you care about the climate, you care about the environment, but really what it extends to is actually like caring about the well-being of people and biodiversity and just life in itself um, and listening to those stories um, of people who have those direct links to the communities that are on the front line of extractivism, it's very sobering. Um, and it sort of makes you realise how much more needs to happen in the wider climate movement, especially in Australia, of how much work we can do and um, how much joy there is to fight for and, and to, to look after ourselves and each other, but really create these strong links with these communities that are just already being devastated because of, because of mining. Um, and we shouldn't settle as well for having a greener future that will be solved by green renewables. Um, that's also a whole other conversation to have and something that Pocket IMAC really wants to facilitate. We can't mine our way out of the climate crisis. Um, yeah, and so I'm definitely here to have that conversation with people here in Australia. Amazing. And, you know, I think the line we are so... Um, often hearing from the politicians in power is that, you know, mining is so important for the economy. And I think um, the more that people repeat something, you know, if it's true and if it's untrue, it just sticks, you know, because you've heard it so many times that, oh, okay, that feels true. And I think you touching on the need for a green, renewable and just economy is really important. How do you think as an educator you can support, you know, Australians to understand this? Mm. Yeah, well, it's a tricky one because especially, you know, when we consider sort of the colonial state that is, you know, so-called Australia, like my, my family migrated here and the, of that generation coming from Europe where um, they came here and I have, you know, a grandfather and, and uncles who have since now passed on, but they got jobs in, in mining. You know, BHP was a, a massive employer out on the east coast of, of Australia 
And so I think so many of us are implicated in that. But the point is that it doesn't look after community. All these communities are actually, you know, they at the moment under this economic system, they they do need these jobs to support themselves. But the point is, like, that's not good for them either. Like, there's devastating effects in mining communities about how disconnected people are. Social health of it is not good. So I think when you consider, like, if we were to measure, you know, well-being as how we are connected, how we can look after each other and how people are healthy in these communities, the fact that they might have a job in the mining sector, it's not worth it. <laughs> it's, 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 it's just not worth it. It's worth it economically, maybe, for a few people, but it's just not worth it in the long run um, for anybody involved. Mm, yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it benefits the few over a short, finite period of time. Yeah. Very, very short-sighted. Very short sighted. It's very, it's not imaginative. Yeah. We could be doing so much more with our time. Uh, um, Yeah, 100%. I guess I'm really interested as well in how, you know, the pandemic, the lovely multiplier of threats that it is, how that's impacted um, Blockade IMARC last year and how it might be impacting it this year. Yes, thank you for that question. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, first off, um, in regards to 2020, so yeah, the International Mining and Resources Conference happened yearly in Melbourne, um, and that went ahead online only. So Blockade IMAC went online, online only, and we actually had this beautiful week-long conference called Beyond Mining, and we sort of advertised that as the counter-conference to IMAC. And that was a wonderful week where we had just dozens of, of panels and um, people speaking from here in so-called Australia and around the world where they could sort of meet and connect and share their own struggles against certain extractive companies. Um, and you can find that, I think, on our YouTube account, also on Spotify, the Beyond Mining Conference. And then in 2021, I mark around October, it was due to run, and then it got postponed, which is now happening in January 31st of this year. So at the current moment, I think we are considering where we are at at the pandemic at the moment, but we are also still organising for in-person protests. Um, and we think we, it can happen safely if we stay, you know, um, protected and stay in small groups. If we can still have a presence, we would like to, even symbolically just to sort of bring attention to the fact that mining, um, yeah, mining deals are still happening under the pandemic. I think, you know, the pandemic has been really devastating to a lot of people um, and mining licences and mining developments have just been able to go unchecked. Mm. And so there's still a lot of, you know, violence, a lot of businesses happening that is sort of, yeah, not being questioned. And we do think it's really important to still figure out what we can do in a month of the pandemic and sort of bring light to those frontline voices and just to demonstrate and, and say that this is not on. Um, we expect more from, I don't know, from everybody. Uh, we definitely don't think that the mining conference should happen during the pandemic. So if they're still there, they're still having a, a meetup, all these mining executives uh, traveling around and meeting up to do their meet and greet and, you know, run all their deals. So we are planning to be there in person as well. Yeah, show that there is still some resistance even mm. in the prolonged stress and strain. Yeah, slowly, slowly. Yeah. yeah. What currently concerns you the most about the IMARC conference? Um, so 
we have this bit of a joke um, <laughs> that um, we can sort of relax and say the climate movement has won in Australia because I mark on their website, if you ever would look at it, you could have a good laugh and to see how much they are spooking their green credentials. A lot of their panels are talking about like carbon offsetting and all these, yeah, beautiful green, clean energy projects that they're all jumping on board for. Mm. But they're steering away from the dirty coal, which you mm. don't have a, that's not good PR anymore for any of these companies. Um, and there are some of the bigger companies that were present in 2019 whose names are missing from 2022's conference. But um, if you're just doing a basic sort of um, dig, you know, look at the, what's happening beneath all their greenwashing spin, um, it's still devastation to a lot of communities and, and to land. And we definitely, what I'm concerned about is maybe how much people might look at the PR of IMARC and be like, oh, good, it's fine, the climate will be safe but there's definitely so much more to it than just green energy is going to save us all. Mm, it's that, quite that, insidious, isn't insane. it? Very insidious. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's just that kind of like the shell effect, you know, like, oh, no, we care oh. about the climate now that we have to say that we do. Yeah. Um, and it just lulls you into that false sense of like, ah, okay. Yeah. Can I take a breath? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> They're relentless. So yeah. Have to be yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and I guess you know, what are some things that you'd like to tell people that they might not know about, you know, IMARC or blockade IMARC? Mm, very good question. Um, I think the biggest thing with blockade IMARC is, I guess you know, when we talk about it, it's easy to say, even in, in saying blockade IMARC, you know, first of all, super jargony. And yeah, the blockade, especially when people think about the 2019 protest, you know, you're going to have images of um, police on four horses sort of trampling people and a lot of pepper spray or OC spray um, and just, yeah, a lot of violence against, against protesting bodies, which is not cool. Um, but we, what we want to do is we want to, you know, it is an alliance. So we actually want to like think about how we can build a future you know we might question these things and be you know quite realistically cynical to be like well this greenwashing PR doesn't sound good what else is happening but we do that from a place of like joy and actually wanting to have the questions that we need to ask to build resilient communities that focuses on the well-being of everybody and all, and all life on earth and that's sort of like you know the end goal is sort of how can we build and strengthen our communities in, you know in response to um the climate crisis and the pandemic and all, all these things that are a part of it you know how do we re start responding to what we need to respond to right here right now we're blockading IMARC to hopefully build and strengthen our our wider community here in so-called Australia and form beautiful joyous um relationships to all these communities that are already on the front line of the extractive industry you know it's um we want people to come to like you know dance to be creative to to heal to connect and feel empowered that we don't need to settle for greenwashing um, BS from these companies that only care about their profits at the end of the day and will keep morphing and shifting um, in whatever it is that they do that, that they do to, to keep their profits running. You know, we, we expect more from that. We want to go after people. 
I love that focusing on joy because it does remind me of every time I read anything by Naomi Klein, how she talks about a better world and how like, yes, this is a problem, but like think of how rich and joyous and beautiful life can be once we kind of like pivot to something way more sustainable and fair. Definitely. I mean, that sums up perfectly. Yeah, that's, that's a good line. <laughs> um so I guess you know you've said that January 31 is when the next conference is in Melbourne and you know there are quite high COVID numbers you know things are still a bit spicy here if people do want to get involved but they might not feel confident um showing up in person to do any kind of the resistance stuff how can people get involved what kind of opportunities are there definitely um well first off we do have an email that you can email us on community at blockadeimark.com. Um, also, if you were to go onto our website, blockadeimark.com, um, click on the Getting Involved tab, and there's just this really simple um, but detailed sign-up form that you can fill out, and that can sort of be asking questions of like, how do you want to participate? How many hours a week or how many hours a month do you have? What are you interested in? Because I think what we want to emphasize with Blockhead Imark is, yes, there is the, the protest that happened for those three days the conference is happening each year. But we're already making plans of having, you know, post events. Like we're, we're thinking of running the, the counter conference in a few months' time. And hopefully, when things have shifted a little bit of where we're at currently in, in the pandemic wave. Um, but there's just so much to do. Even if you just want to send us an email just for more information about why we care so much about blockading IMAR, you know, having just, we're here to have discussions with people and having, you know, information sessions, sharing that, that knowledge about why we can't settle for greenwashing and why we can't mine our way out of the climate crisis. So, yeah, send us an email, contact us on Facebook and fill out our sign-up form on our website and we'll send you a friendly email back and say hello and start with them. (laughs) (laughs) But um, there's a spot for everybody and everyone's input is valuable. Yeah, Beautiful. Is there anything else that you think is important for us to know? Hmm. That's a good question, I'm about that for a second um i just want to i'd like to finish it on maybe um paying respects to you know why we talk about extractivism that that comes out from a lot of the social movements in latin america um where they name and define this thing called extractivism um and they have the line where extractivism is not development so I definitely would just like to leave that note of if we're going to talk about solving the climate crisis, crisis, we need to think about development. What does that mean? And can we look after the climate while having this perpetual growth in development? Um, and I think that's something that we all need to really consider as a broader community here in Australia. Mm, that's a really, really great point to leave it on because I think passing the link between quality of life, standards of living, and um infinite growth i think that's like a conversation that's coming into general pop more and more and more which is great still a long way to go yes yes i mean i'm i'm just learning that's why i'm here yeah (laughs) i'm learning but i I kind of put in a little while ago that doing it with other people is definitely the way to go agree Well, thank you so much for your time. That's amazing. I highly encourage people to get involved and reached out because last year through the pandemic, I um, was doing some social media tiles. It was a really, really nice way to stay involved and give some time. But yeah, like you said, there's room for everyone to do a lot of different things. Definitely.
Definitely. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated this. No worries. Anytime. Well, um, you might run in to NATO at Blockade IMARC this year, January 31, or you might hear back from them if you email. But if not, again, we've been speaking to NATO activists and campaigner from Blockade IMARC.
I'm interviewing Emma Bacon, the executive director from Sweltering Cities, who are based in Sydney, but do a lot of work in Melbourne as well. Hi, Emma, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. It's exciting to be able to have a chance to talk to the audience. So, can you please tell us what Sweltering Cities is and how it came to be? So, Sweltering Cities is a small NGO that works directly with communities who are living in the hottest suburbs across Australia to campaign and organise and advocate for more livable, equitable and sustainable cities. And that includes, you know, as we say, turning down the oven, which means climate action um, that is going to actually stop our cities becoming really, really baking hot uh, for lots more of the year. And so Sweltering Cities is was started um, at the beginning of 2020, which is a great time to start a new organisation that's based in, (laughs) you know, community-focused outreach. Um, But what we've found over the last couple of years, you know, existing at the same time as we've had this global pandemic is that there's a huge demand from people to be talking about these issues, who want to share their stories about what extreme heat is doing to them, how it's affecting how they live, how they work, how they take care of their family or the kids or older people and that people are really interested in becoming part of a campaign or part of a movement to do something about that and to make sure that the communities they live in are livable, sustainable, equitable um, into the future. So even though it's been a tough couple of years, I think that, you know, these issues are more important than ever and a lot of people are really keen to be involved, which is great. It's amazing work starting um, a community organisation through a pandemic, but I imagine, you know, I'm hoping that a lot of people are at home and really just ready to get their hands into something tangible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> so what are some of the work and the campaigns that you've been doing? So there's really three big pillars of what Sweltering Cities does. So the first is community organising that's working directly with communities in the hottest suburbs. Across Australia, we know that areas like Western Sydney and Southwest Sydney are really powerfully affected. Uh, In Penrith, in Western Sydney, it was 48.9 degrees a couple of summers ago. And if you think about what that would even feel like to be on the pavement, to try and work in that sort of temperatures, to be walking home from school or work in that sort of extreme baking heat, um, we know that that part part of Australia is really powerfully affected. But there's also other parts like Western Melbourne, especially in those large urban heat island areas uh, where there's not enough trees, there's a lot of concrete, um, places like Sunshine where, you know, there's really uh, lots of concrete, dark surfaces, not enough trees, and it's much warmer than other parts of the city, and also the Dandenong region in Melbourne. And we work with communities in also southeast Queensland. People think Queensland's already hot, but you know, as the temperatures rise due to climate change, it's going to be even hotter overnight and people aren't going to get that relief their bodies need in order to be um, in order to be healthy through the heat. So we're doing that close work with communities. We're also running strategic campaigns, so it's saying what are real tangible things that will support communities to adapt to climate change, to build a more livable, sustainable community, identifying things like, you know, Lots of the hottest suburbs in Sydney don't have bus shelters at the bus stops. I really enjoyed looking at the Sweltering Cities website and seeing in the resources section, um, you know, the blog post, heat waves on a day at the beach, heat-related illnesses and resources. And I, f- 
I really like that because a lot of the time the media position is, you know, climate change is coming, more hot days and evenings, and there's these beautiful pictures of people at the beach relaxing, having fun, and I'm still not sure that enough work is being done to have people draw the link between illness and extreme heat. You're 100% right. Heat waves are Australia's most deadly environmental disaster. Since we've started recording statistics on you know, people who die during environmental disasters in Australia, heat waves have killed more than all the other disasters combined. But when we think about those hot heat wave days and on the front page of the newspaper, you've got people at the beach, that's not telling the full story about how people are being impacted. It's not telling you that, you know, there's parts of Sydney where three times as many people are turning up to hospital than in the cooler suburbs because their suburbs are much hotter. We need to actually reflect the fact that it is environmental disaster in media coverage. But more importantly, we need to put people who've got the direct lived experience of those heat waves and of living in those urban heat islands into the news as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, have you connected with much of the community in those really hot suburbs of New South Wales? How is that going? What are, what are some oh, of yeah. the conversations that you're having? Oh, we're working directly with lots of people across the city. We've had community meetings in Penrith, Blacktown, Campbelltown, and lots more, lots of individual meetings with people across the city. Uh, last year, we did a community survey with over 700 people um, all over Sydney, over 170 postcodes who told us about what it feels like uh, to live through the heat and how it's affecting them. Things like 87% of people who did the survey saying that they've got trouble sleeping. And the next day they feel, you know, dizzy, unwell, grumpy, they can't concentrate. There's a huge number of people who are affected. The stories we're hearing are, you know, often really, really hard to listen to. You will be shocked by how many people tell me that they're dreading the summer. I've spoken to people who are worried about their families who, you know, are really anxious that they're not going to be able to pay for air conditioning or that their homes aren't set up to be safe over the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, when you've got some people across the cities who are dreading summer and other people who are excited about, you know, all the time they're going to get spent at the beach, you're saying there's huge inequality. And it's actually inequality that's driving so many of these problems. Um, Sweltering Cities works at the intersection of health, inequality and climate change. Because, you know, even if we all have electric, or sorry, even if some people have electric cars, even if there's lots of, you know, solar panels for air conditioning, you know, in wealthier parts of the city, that's actually not going to address, you know, adapting to climate change for the people who really need it. And those are the people living in our hottest suburbs. So, yeah, we have been meeting with people across the city in Penrith, in Blacktown and Campbelltown and having meetings where people are welcoming us into their homes and their communities across the city. And it's those conversations that are really driving the strategy and the direction of sweltering cities. Last summer, we did a huge community survey with 700 people across 170 postcodes in Sydney, uh, mostly in the highly affected areas of Western Northwest Sydney. And people were telling us, you know, things like 87% of them felt like they couldn't sleep on hot nights or during heat waves. They were feeling, you know, unwell. They couldn't concentrate. They're feeling dizzy um, the next day. And, you know, we're seeing just the huge impact it's having on people's lives. You will be shocked by how many people tell me that they are dreading summer. You know, Sweltering Cities Mm. works at the intersection of climate change, inequality and health. And it's inequality that's driving these really dire impacts for so many people across our cities. 
It's really incredible. And I think that's a fantastic community-led way to do it. That's great. Are you noticing any um, health impacts aside from the increasing hospital presentations? Well, you know, unfortunately, we don't have enough of the statistics for how heat is impacting Australians' health. Because when people turn up to the hospital, they go to the doctors, or, you know, unfortunately, if they die during heat waves, then often their illnesses or their deaths are recorded as respiratory or mm. cardiovascular disease. So it's work being done afterwards by epidemiologists to say, well, there was this increase in deaths or disease during that time. We're not getting an up-to-date um, record of what's happening. And that's one of the reasons why people don't see heat waves as an emergency, because we're not measuring the health impacts in real time. But heat-related illnesses are everything from dehydration, heat stress, sorry, heat stroke, heat stress, um, heat exhaustion, and that can really, uh, you know, it can sneak up on you. It can be mm. a few, you know, a half an hour walk in the sun with not enough water for the right person can actually give them um, some really dramatic health impacts when it's 40, 45 degrees out there. People need to be really careful. Um, but we're not doing enough to support the most vulnerable people. Mm. And I guess in the time that you've been with the group, what is the response from um, developers and um, politicians like? You know, I think that there are lots of people who are trying their best to do their version of sustainable development. Mm. But until we raise standards, until we raise minimum standards, we are not going to be creating the sustainable communities that we need to address climate change. There are huge numbers of emissions that come through the lack of energy efficiency, lack of renewable energy supplied to the housing sector, um, that are driving emissions. And as we see temperatures increase, people are going to turn on the aircon and that's just going to increase. I would say that everything that people think they're doing at the moment, from tree planting strategies onwards uh mm. we just need to do more of and it needs to be more heavily targeted towards hot areas where the most vulnerable people live or the most marginalized people live and it, we need to say you know public like public transport is an example public transport is climate change adaptation and mitigation mm. you know i think that we need to make public transport accessible sustainable the solution to climate change is not just giving everyone a tesla it's saying people can get on a locally, like a, a bus outside their house that's going to help take them around their day. Mm. You know, the cities of the future, we need to think of as really interconnected, really um, green and really accessible for people. And I would say that governments, developers are not doing enough at the moment for those people who are the most marginalised and we need to raise standards across the board. Mm. and logical kind of public transport systems hey and routes not ones that you know take you two or three hours to get to you know a to b because you need to go through jet like j z oh, totally. m first yeah and this is a huge issue in melbourne like i used to live mm. in uh footscray in melbourne and this was 10 years ago but you know it felt like a long way from the leafy tram routes of the inner north, you know, mm. and that was um, nothing compared to like if you go to somewhere like Broadmeadows, if you go to other parts of the western suburbs, and they're really underserved when it comes to public transport. Mm. And 
you know, it's having sensible public transport systems that are electrified, that meet community need. And it's saying the new suburbs we are planning, you know, there should be rail links put in as we're building new suburbs um, and other public transport links. So we aren't creating more car dependent communities because that just means bigger roads, more urban heat islands and more pollution. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What are some of the challenges that your group has um, come in across and what are some of the really positive stories that you can share? I think that there is a huge communications gap between the people who are experiencing the really dire impacts of extreme mm. heat right now and decision makers and the media. You know, I've been, you know, speaking to a woman who lives in one of the hottest suburbs in Sydney and she has a little boy mm. and she is so worried about him this summer because mm. she can see that, you know, each year that he's struggling to keep all little kids have a lot of trouble regulating their temperature. And the idea of being a mum to a toddler and worried about their safety at night, you know, she's sleeping in her car sometimes because her house doesn't have a ceiling fan. It doesn't have air conditioning. She's living in affordable housing. And, you know, it's stories like that. You think, you know, we need to be doing more for the people in the hotter suburbs. We shouldn't be building any more energy inefficient housing. And people mm. shouldn't be, you know, worried about their kids' safety in summer because there's no air conditioning or they can't afford to turn on the air conditioning. But there's a huge communications gap between the people who are experiencing those things and they, you know, people like this woman and others, they've got great ideas. They know exactly what the community needs to be safer. But there's no sense that... You know, we need urgent, dramatic, well-funded action in the hotter suburbs um, to transform them to be more adaptive to climate change. So I think that's a big challenge is convincing people it's an urgent problem. Mm. Um, what was the second half of the question? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's okay. What are some of the positive stories that you can share or that you feel like sharing? Uh, we've been overwhelmed by people who are really interested in getting involved you know, when we started Sweltering Cities, the idea was to start working in Western Sydney because we knew that it was highly impacted, a dense area and an area that's really politically important. Mm-hmm. Soon after, we had people from Melbourne as reaching out. We did a small version of the community survey last summer in Melbourne, and now we've got a larger version planned for this summer. We're targeting to have a 1,000 people across Victoria do the community survey on how heat is affecting them at home and at their work, how it's affecting their health this summer. And that's due to people reaching out to us and saying they really want to get involved in the movement to, you know, have more um, cooler, livable, sustainable cities. So that's great. But we've also had people reach out in Queensland and the ACT and the Northern Territory and South Australia even. So we're really excited by how many people are saying you know, now is the now is the right time for us to, you know, include reshaping our cities, include health concerns in the way we talk about climate change. Because, you know, there is so much about the climate change politics in Australia that is really contested conflict, like conflicted space around resources, around um, regional jobs, around mining, and you know, in our opinion, climate change is a public health emergency. Mm. And we can talk about it as a public health emergency. We can get through to people. We can change people's minds. We can, you know, support communities when we understand it's a health problem. Um, But 
you know, is all about how we can both mitigate and adapt to climate change at the same time. And it's been really fantastic how many people have reached out to us, how many people are excited about doing the community survey this summer and how many people are so generous and creative with their ideas, sharing their ideas for how they can, you know, make their communities more livable and sustainable and, you know, create these net zero carbon communities of the future. We've heard so many great ideas. And, you know, in the community survey, people said everything from, you know, Australia needs to do better on climate action to we need more bubblers or water fountains at our bus stops and in our local shops. Mm. And, you know, it's from the hyper-local to the global. And we're really excited about the solutions people are sharing and supporting them to win campaigns for those tangible changes. That's amazing. What does your ideal city look like? Ooh. I think my ideal city has more power for the community to shape the way their suburb looks. Mm. And I think that my ideal city has a planning system that helps people, you know, share creative ideas, to be welcoming, to not be driven out of their communities by you know record high housing prices Mm. Um, somewhere where people can have housing security that means that they're willing to ask their landlords you know can you make my house more energy efficient I want to live here for a long time but I need to feel safe Mm. I need to feel okay in summer I think that a more just system is what we need because You know, you can have tree planting targets and I think they're fantastic, but it's when the community drives those targets and when the community has ownership over projects, they think when they're fundamentally really successful. Um, Yeah, I'd like to see citizens, community members play a bigger role in how our cities are shaped. And I think that can only have a positive effect when people feel more secure um, and more welcome as well Mm. through that process. Yeah, beautiful. So how can people get involved and how can people support Sweltering Cities? Well, they can look at swelteringcities.org. That's got a place to sign up to hear from us with emails. It's got some more information about our campaigns. They can find us on Facebook as Sweltering Cities and Twitter as Sweltering City because cities was too long. Um, (laughs) So those are a few places to get in contact with us. Uh, We'd love for anyone to sign up to hear more from us. We'd love for people to get in touch and say they want to be involved in the community survey because, you know, by the end of summer, we're going to be reporting back and we're going to have that goal of a thousand people across Victoria who've done the survey. And we want the responses to be full of great ideas that we can then share with decision makers and the media and other community members. So we're eager to have lots of people who are interested to get involved. Beautiful. Is there anything else you think is important for the listeners to know or anything else that you would like to add? I think just that we need to know that climate change isn't something that will happen in the future or in a distant location. It's something that's happening right now to people in our cities. And we need to act with that urgency. And we also need to think of climate action as something that's going to impact you know, not just the electricity, but we, not just the electricity we buy, but also the way we get to work, or the way we get to school, or where we buy our food, or you know, how we work, how we get around. And instead of thinking of that through a scarcity 
mindset instead of thinking, oh, I've got to reduce these things. I can't do this. I can't do that. You know, we can think of these abundant cities where there's more local fruit and veg that people can get, where there's clean air and clean water and affordable housing that's sustainable and energy efficient. And I think, you know, climate change action can create really beautiful communities. And Mm. that's a great way to talk to people about joining together to make those changes. Yeah, absolutely. Look, thank you so much time for you. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, Emma. No we've been speaking to, sorry, we've been speaking oh. to Emma Bacon, <laughs> Executive Director and Activist from Sweltering Cities. Thank you for listening. We look, we look forward to you joining us again next week. And now some climate updates from our good friends at Climate for Change. Climate is changing with devastating consequences now and in the immediate future. Climate change is increasing the frequency of megafires in Australia and putting entire ecosystems at risk, new research by the CSIRO has found. Large parts of New South Wales and Queensland received more than a month's worth of rain in a day last week, putting them on flood watch. 216 Australian bird species are threatened with extinction, with 23 critically endangered, and climate change is the main driver. The cost of the climate crisis in flooded South Sudan is rising, after another summer of intense rainfall worsened in an already dire situation. Solutions are available and affordable, however. Many are already being rolled out around the world. So the Victorian government has given $40 million in public funding to kickstart three major offshore wind projects in a massive win. Cheap renewables continue to push down wholesale power prices for Australians, in spite of the closure of more fossil fuel generators. Nestle Australia is switching to a 100% renewable energy supply with a CWP wind farm deal. Notably, corporate customers are paying an increasingly important role in driving investment in new renewable projects and also supporting existing ones. As German Chancellor Angela Merkel steps down, German parties have agreed to a coalition deal with a push towards renewable energy and a plan for a phase-out of coal by 2030 in fantastic news. But, as per usual, people with the power to make changes we need aren't acting fast enough. In fact, some are actively holding us back. So in December of 2021, Anthony Albanese announced Labor will cut emissions by a meagre 43% by 2030 if they win power at the next election. This is more than the coalition's embarrassing 26 to 28%, but we need to at least halve our emissions by 2030 to avoid catastrophic climate change if we can at all. The Morrison government has used sweeping new powers to cancel states and territories' participation in global climate action, which is another blow for the climate movement. Under a new strategy by the federal government, taxpayers will fund the private sector to accelerate gas exploration around Australia. Global wind giant Vestas said the new wind projects will stop unless the federal government ensures that the electricity grid evolves due to grid connections becoming too difficult and expensive. It says Australia could be a global leader in the rapid transition to renewables, but not without federal government support. The federal government has been ranked last behind Australia's states and territories in the move towards clean energy, with a new report showing Tasmania, New South Wales and South Australia are leading the transition to renewables. But all over the world, people from all walks of life are building a movement for the changes that we need yesterday. So a Queensland psychology student has launched a crowdfunding campaign to give a voice to those most impacted by climate change, farmers and miners. 
There are young, diverse Australians hoping to change the face of New South Wales local government this election, with many campaigning on stronger climate action. Three young people are taking legal action against the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, accusing him of breaching his legal obligations to, to take practical and effective measures to tackle the climate crisis. Prominent environmental activist and author Bill McKibben is launching a new grassroots movement to mobilise older Americans to combat climate change and work on related social justice issues. It is a race against time. We need everybody, and this is some of the things that you can do to join them. Stand up. Call for the Australian government to cut emissions this decade by signing the Climate Council's petition and also vote for climate this upcoming election. And get informed. Watch Burning, a documentary from Academy Award-winning Australian filmmaker Eva Orner. It takes an unflinching look at the unprecedented, catastrophic Australian bushfires of 2019 and 2020. It shines a light on the global issue of climate change. I also ask and wonder if you haven't already, could you commit to divesting your super funds or changing banks? And so for those who might not know what divestment is and why we're all banging on about it, put simply, divestment is the opposite of investment. It is the act of selling assets for moral, political or financial reasons. Divestment is an effective tactic for influencing positive change. Famous examples include divestment from South Africa in the former era of apartheid, divestment of the arms trade and tobacco industry divestment. So there are many ethical future uh, super companies part of the fossil fuel divestment movement right here in Australia. Fossil fuel divestment is a process of selling off assets in companies that mine, process or burn fossil fuels. Many of these super companies have divested from companies that provide finance or services to the fossil fuel industry, such as Australia's big four banks. The fossil fuel divestment movement is dedicated to moving out of fossil fuel companies. This undermines the social license of the industry by telling them they are no longer welcome to continue operating and no longer able to invest our money in burning our future. As well as individuals divesting their personal finances, many different organisations have also committed to divest. These include universities, churches, city councils, philanthropic organisations, insurance companies and huge sovereign wealth funds. You can find out more about the fossil free movement at Go Fossil Free, and I'll put that in the show notes. You can also find out what your super fund's exposure to fossil fuel investment is by looking them up on SuperSwitch, which I'll also put in the show notes. This is an independent resource by non-profit group Market Forces to help people find out how their super is fueling the climate change. If they're not listed on there or they have not disclosed their exposure, you can contact them directly, and it is good to put them on notice and put the pressure on. So divestment serves two purposes. Divestment delegitimizes those businesses that use money of power to cause harm. For example, in countries where the fossil fuel industry has a firm hold on all parts of society, you know, through political lobbying like we have here, the funding of political think tanks, divestment erodes the industry's dominance and creates a space needed for change to happen. Secondly, divestment is most effective when coupled with reinvestment. So with many of the ethical super companies operating in Australia, their mission is to ensure that their members' money is building a future worth retiring into. I mean, what good is a bit of a nest egg when, you know, there's civil collapse and wars over resources? I mean, I'm not looking forward to that. (laughs) By allowing their members to invest in line with their values, Ethical super, um, ethical super companies aim to fast-track the transition away from coal in lieu of political action and into a future free from climate change and inequality. 
I'll put it to you that if you haven't done it yet, please, please, please check it out. One way you can vote before the actual voting date we're going to have for the election in May, you can vote with your money. And then with your banks, despite the urgent need to stop global warming and the havoc being wreaked, wreaked on our land, water, air, health communities, Australia's big four banks continue to play a critical role in supporting the dirty fossil fuel industry. As a community, we have the power to change the big banks, but we need everyone to join in on the campaign, ensuring that your money that you work for or that you get is used as a force for good. So I encourage you to check out market forces and again i'll put that in the show notes and you can explore what the banks are funding by looking at their bank comparison table it's super handy you can read their funding climate failure report where you can learn how the big four banks are using your money to fund fossil fuels making a mockery of their commitment to net zero emissions by 2050 and the paris agreement and you can start your divestment journey if you plan to and you feel comfortable you can put your bank on notice contact them using the market forces contact drop down thing. You can find a new bank. Again, there's many, many banks operating within Australia. Bank Australia being my personal favourite. I'm not in cahoots with them, although I wish I was. You can find a new bank that better aligns with your values. You can make the switch. You can use their the market forces guide to move your account to a bank that won't use your money to finance fossil fuels and tell your story. When you leave, let them know why you're leaving. Let them know that you do not support your money cooking your future. Enough is enough. So thank you for tuning in to the first show of the year. I will close out with a nice song to get you back on a bit of a high note. Um, This is a really important year for climate action in Australia and again in the world. We know we, the last seven years have been the hottest in record and it's only getting hotter and hotter. We can have such a beautiful world, you know, we can have everything that we we need. We just need to push people with the power to make it happen. So enjoy your Monday and you'll catch us over the next coming weeks. Bye.